0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Ruth Ezell. As the U.S. population grows more ethnically diverse, many historians and educators are becoming more aware of changing demographics and are keen on ensuring that diversity is reflected in the way the nation's history is presented in classrooms. For many years, textbooks have not accurately reflected true accounts of historical figures or events, such as seen in a textbook published by McGraw-Hill Education. In the topic immigration, one chapter read that, and I quote, the Atlantic slave trade brought millions of workers from Africa to the southern United States to work on agricultural plantations, end quote. There's also been criticisms that schools limit coverage of communities of color to a chapter or a lesson or a time of year. For example, some say Black History Month gives short shrifts to individuals whose contributions should not be forgotten. Joining me in studio to talk about it are... LeGarrett King, he's an associate professor at the University of Missouri-Columbia who specializes in African history education, African-American history education, pardon me. Laura Westoff, associate professor of history and education at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And Robert Good, adjunct professor in educator preparation and leadership at UMSL. LeGarrett, Laura, and Rob, welcome to the program.
1: Good Thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh, Laura, I've got a question. I'll start with you. What exactly is the process that
2: a textbook makes from conception to getting into the classroom? How does that happen? Oh my, that's a very um, complex and long process. Um, So textbooks are developed for particular markets, um, for state populations, particular states, um, or to appeal very broadly. So textbook companies will look at uh, their potential markets, uh, then seek historians to develop and uh, write textbooks. At this point though, a textbook it, it, it will take years to come to publication, so the process of revising textbooks uh, becomes much more important. So textbooks are frequently revised and go through many editions with additional historians coming on to review and revise information in those textbooks. So there are uh, a few textbooks conceived and started in any given moment. Many more that are in continual process of, of uh, editing and revision. OK.
0: Now, Rob, you're an adjunct professor. Uh-huh. So I take it you got another job too, another history teacher job. I was a,
1: re- I'm a retired uh, social studies teacher.
0: Ah, OK. So you've spent time with students, because social studies is also, there's yeah. history component to that. So, how have you seen students like interact with that kind of material? Do they ever say, "Well, why do I need to learn this in the first place?"
1: Yeah, they're pretty much bored with their textbooks. <laughs> um, so, the, the the process that Laura just talked about produces a bland, um, non interesting sort of authoritative voice that they just don't engage in. And and so, I taught um, high school U.S. history for twenty seven years, and saw the changes. And as 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 Textbooks tried to appeal to a broader array of folks. They started adding folks. It was piecemeal. Oh, let's add, you know, it was all famous white men and women. Well, let's add some famous black men and women. And let's put them in the sides so that the narratives overall didn't shift. And overall, the students just find it as dull, repetitive, and non-interesting. They take all the the juice, controversy, and excitement out of history.
0: OK. Well, so you've seen the textbooks change. Has the process of teaching, have any of you seen that change? How about you, LaGarrette?
3: Well um no right <laughs> um, so 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 uh, um I'll preference it by saying that there has been movements to push um, teaching to a different, different way, right? Using more primary source documents. Uh, the National Council for Social Studies been pushing this 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 concept called C3 College, Career, Civic Life, where questions drive the instruction, right, within these particular history classes. But more and more, it seems like a lot of students, after they leave teacher prep, um, they just kind of go back to the way in which they used to teach, or are used to learn. So they teach the way in which they used to learn, which is is mainly teacher directed, but there are, there, um, there are movements right to kind of teach in different ways. You know, critical thinking and and using um, primary sources and questions to drive the instruction instead of the textbook.
0: Okay, now as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, um, that one example where slaves were referred to as quote unquote workers. Are there any other similarly egregious examples that come to mind for you going through some of these textbooks?
3: Well, you know, um, as we talk about the improvement of textbooks, right, um, there's very subtle signs of uh, discrimination as it pertains to people who are not white, right? You know, the curriculum is the textbooks are mainly Eurocentric, um, but you'll find it where Let's say, for instance, black people, right? This notion of black people being passive. Black people being happy, being enslaved, um, black people, um, you know, particularly in the civil rights, this this real emphasis on nonviolence. When you know, when you look through history, right, particularly history textbooks, violence rules everything, right. And this notion of the only way that you can achieve freedom is through nonviolence is a fallacy, right. So you kind of see these double standards, if you may, in the ways in which narratives are crafted based on um, uh, the color of their skin or gender or sexuality um, if it's not part of kind of this Eurocentric male Protestant middle-class view.
0: OK, I'd like to invite our listeners in on this conversation because, hey, we've all studied history at some point and I think everybody's got an opinion on it. If you have a question or a comment for our guests, please give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at STL So do you guys, any of you, see any more efforts to portray more accurate pictures of what has taken place in the past? Rob?
1: In textbooks or in teaching practice? In teaching. So um, there is a move um, to – Think about opening up the textbooks to make students think that they are, to make them critical about the information that they're receiving. And so, one example of how this might work or how it did work um, in, in a class I was teaching so, I taught freshman U.S. history, and we started with Reconstruction. And so, the Reconstruction chapter in the book that we were using, American Anthem, even though they had added some African Americans um, here around the edges, they didn't, they talked about Reconstruction as being devised by Lincoln. Johnson, you know, the white actors, the Congress, the defeated Confederates, that the voice and agency of African-Americans was completely taken out. And that's despite, you know, a tremendous amount of scholarship that's been done in the last 20, 30 years about how African-Americans, you, you know, if you go to the National Archives, there's tens of thousands of letters of them petitioning, seeking to change. And so what we did in class was we, you know, so we read the textbook and, and then use documents to sort of say, using some of those documents, saying, "Okay, well, what were were people of color, what were African-Americans doing to seek to change this? And then going into and saying, if you were to to revise this textbook, how would you change the narrative? What would you do? Um, And going one step further then for extra credit, because, you know, young people always love extra credit, you know, Go ahead and send this to the um, to the author to the editor, and so they sent it to Sam Weinberg, who was uh, who's a, a fairly significant um, history history educator, um, and he actually wrote them back. So and and they like that, they like, you know, they're their, their, their adolescents, they like challenging authority and, and seeing that the authority of the textbook maybe isn't all that. So, um, and I know that on the Stanford Historical Education Group, which is a website, they have techniques for opening up the textbooks, asking students to think critically about the material they're receiving. Because if they're in Texas, they may be
0: getting a different story than mm-hmm. they might if they're in Alabama or California. You know, you mentioned reconstruction. I've got to give a plug, a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm there was that series, uh, Henry Louis Gates, Mm -hmm. on reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As a history teacher, are you allowed to, when something like that pops up, is it okay to tell students, hey, maybe you want
2: to check out this show? Oh, absolutely, and we incorporate, at least in our college classes, and I see my teacher education students incorporating these kinds of resources into their teaching quite a bit. I think one of the important things to recognize about critical thinking and, and what Rob is describing is that it's not so much a critical... Uh, stance towards the US, but a critical understanding of how stories about the past are created by historians, are researched and written, and how this process of writing textbooks, as I described, is, uh, is one that produces a, a narrative that is unappealing, is bland, and offers ways for us to ask questions about what else happened, who else was involved. So the textbook becomes a way of diving into a richer history. And those are changes I see in classrooms.
3: Look What I may add, um, I think it's a uh, question of ideology, right? We focus on this notion of history without focusing on histories, right? So that Y in the IES really makes um, a big difference because the Y denotes like a one singular story which denotes this notion of Eurocentrism, right? Um, So when we say that, oh, We have this quality versus quantity issue as it pertains to, um, well, are the textbooks getting better, right? Um, So we measure if they're getting better based on the quantity of different faces that we see and not necessarily the quality of what we see, right, within those particular aspects. So when we say, uh, you know, one of the biggest misnomers is that, and I use black history for example, that black history is American history right and we love to say that but it's really not not in the ways in which we are conceptualizing american history right mm-hmm. black history is different because black history has um different frameworks different time periods different ways different perspectives right so for example july 4th 1776 historically means nothing to black people right you but but yet we call that american independence right so in in in, in ways we need to focus on, well, what are the different perspectives and frameworks that other people are coming from? And instead of using history, we need to teach histories.
0: Okay. We have some phone calls, but first we have to take a break. We'll be right back to continue this discussion in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
1: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. ChooseWood.com.
0: Now let's head back to our conversation about the evolution of history textbooks and we're going to start with one of our listeners on twitter bob who says he thinks young people need to be more aware of how historical narratives may or may not be reflective of what actually occurred he also asks how do we make them aware of the issue without turning them off to history Mm -hmm. That's a challenge, and I want. Let's take a phone call as well. Uh, we have Giles. He's calling from Clayton. Good afternoon, Giles. How are you?
4: I'm okay. I'm fine. Yeah, I basically wanted to uh, kind of pose a, a statement and also in a, a question that the reason that our society has, is as it is is because of the way we're being taught. Uh, these social constructs of uh, so-called black and white was are fallacies, which became a part of the country. And now we continue to teach them in the curriculum so we get the result of uh, what they uh, manifest with the cynicism, racism, and all those things come about. When in reality, uh, we just want people in America, supposed to be Americans, as opposed to this color code that we used during slave time. That's a part of history, too, that we need to get straightened out, Uh, that the social constructs need to be changed. You know what I'm saying? Because that's a major flaw in our educational system as we teach our young people uh, to be more diverse. And then they go through all this, and then they have to learn diversity once they get grown and become police, judges, lawyers, or whatever. They have to learn how to be diverse then because of what they learned earlier. And it's hurting both groups of people the so called black and the so called white. You understand where I'm at?
0: Okay, is that your question? Or I'm, well, I'm that's, not cl- that's a comment, and that's a question also posed
4: to your uh, people to people there on, on the on the uh, historical aspect as well to change the curriculum to, to to reflect more of the truth of who we are as a people.
0: Okay, well thank yep. you. Yep. yeah, thank right. you for your call Giles. We appreciate that. um he raises he didn't exactly raise his question, but he was kind of getting, I think around to it. Our race relations, how were they affected by what people learn in the classroom about history? Any, Laura, do you have any opinion on that?
2: Uh, Wow, that's quite a a question. (laughs) I know Um, it's a big question. Yeah, it is a big question, and, and I think that... Uh, we learn about who we are in many, many ways. We, we learn from our parents, we learn from our communities, and we certainly learn from our schools. So the challenge for young people is often that that what they're learning is in disagreement. So what we learn from our parents, what we learn from our communities may well be different from what we learn from our our schools and our textbooks. And so that when it comes to diversity, uh, raises questions for for young people, I think, that have been questions for the entire history of our nation, is who are we? Who, what does it mean to be American and what is our story or stories, as LeGarrett points out? Uh, this is a huge question that can't be um, thoroughly explored in a single textbook or even the time of one's schooling. So the key for me is how do you make that exciting? Because that's a very stuff of civic life mm-hmm. and and curiosity about who we are. So how do we make that exciting in the classroom? Your thoughts, Rob?
1: Well, you know, Legarrett had mentioned the sort of the nonviolent tradition that gets in textbooks. And um, about five years ago, uh, there was a study about asking students to identify the top Americans, uh-huh. if they just had to name them. And um, Chauncey Montesano and, and Sam Weinberg did this, and if the top three, so they couldn't be presidents, um, were Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and Harriet Tubman. So on one hand, that's really wonderful, you know, that they're, that points to this idea of an inclusive, multi you know, a, a society working for greater race relations, but on the <laughs> flip side, the way those stories, have, the way students take up those stories is often very, very thin and, and not as developed. So Rosa Parks, you know, the story, you know, if I was ever to write a book about teaching, it would be poor Rosa's tired because that's the story that they get. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't understand the radicalism of her involvement with the NAACP that she was sending students into to um, to, um, to to integrate the library, that she had gone to Highlander and that she was connected with a network of people that made that protest work. So so on one hand, I think that young people have a a sense of I think that the work in textbooks to to create more more stories and more storylines has been positive. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done.
0: All right. Let's take another caller. John is calling from Ferguson. Hello. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hello there. Um, I was on the school board for Ferguson floors for, for
5: like five years and I was looking at the history textbooks while I was there. And I noticed, like, the Ottoman Empire, which, you know, influenced Western civilization for 700 years, had a page and a half in the Advanced Western Civilization textbook. And you look at all the issues that are going on in today's world, a lot of the problems we have are from the crumbling and the floats of the jets of the Ottoman Empire. That's pretty much
0: it. (laughs) Okay, well thank you for your call, John. I appreciate that. Uh, it are things so condensed that they don't really mean anything and don't resonate with Garrett?
3: Well it's impossible to fit every historical um, event, right, within a you know, textbook. So really our our issue is, well, we're a teacher's knowledge, right? Um, state standards and how these teachers um, mean, you know, the two together, right? Um, one of the reasons why textbooks are so important bec- because a lot of history teachers do not have, you know, the knowledge, right, to teach these complex, you know, histories. So in many ways, it's about teacher training. It's about helping um, history teachers and social studies teachers really understand the complexities of history. And as we go back to this big T versus little t, right? uh, Big T truth and little t truth, um, students need to understand that yes, you know, histories are manufactured, right? It's all about what we can find, right? Um, But I think that is kind of the beauty of these new movements where we use primary source documents to make different arguments because it helps students understand that, wait, there's more than one story, or there could be multiple stories, depending on what we can find.
0: All right. We have another caller. Cindy is calling from St. Louis. Good afternoon, Cindy. Good afternoon. How are you? Doing good. What's your question?
6: Great. My question is, as I reflect back on my childhood, and I remember sitting in the class doing history time, um, after we would finish a chapter uh, speaking about African Americans, we kind of walked with our head held low. And our Caucasian uh, fellow students were able to hold their head up high because the pictures were were portraying us as dark and poor. Of course, they were only speaking of the history at that time. But what are they doing? My question is, what are they doing now so that the young African Americans will be able to hold their head up high and feel as if we played a very intricate part of history? And to see the pictures and not... um, want to rush through the chapter because it's, it's, it's so demeaning to them. So what are some of the things that they're actually doing to portray a more positive image of where, where we evolved to in the history books? Because I know that that's all they had back then, or that's all they wanted to portray back then. And I also heard you say that, uh, not you, but they usually cater to the state And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, there were quite a few African Americans in the state, so they were basically just catering to, it seems, to the Caucasian side of history. And so what are they doing to kind of change that?
0: Okay, good question, Cindy, Mm -hmm. big question. And I think to her point about the way blacks are portrayed in history, there has always been a diversity Mm -hmm. among black Americans. And I mean, just tracing my own family history, Middle-class blacks go back a long, Mm -hmm. long way, and you don't see any of that Mm. at all.
2: And and that's true for many groups that we're talking about in terms of of diversity, that it's uh, much more complex than African Americans as a single group, women as a single group. Mm -hmm. And so the diversity within those groups and the ways that they have interacted in history is part of the response to this story. And, And this comes from historical scholarship who which is attempting, as Rob pointed out, to talk about African-American agency, for example, um, and how African-Americans at the time of Reconstruction were actively involved in the political process to shape the outcome and that their participation mattered at that moment to the way that white politicians were talking about the possibilities. So that sort of complexity gets to the richer story.
3: There's movements around the country in improving black history education. Um, There are seven states that mandate black history education for their um, state schools. There's about three school districts, including the School District of Philadelphia, that mandates black history for graduation. Um, I started a research center last January, the uh, Carter Center for K-12 Black History Education. And we have a teaching black history conference every July, um, as well as all other different different, um, you know, resources out there, Teaching Tolerance, um, the Howard Zinn Educational Group, um, Rethinking Schools, Liberate History, uh, Demetrius Hobson, a young man out in Chicago who curates African-American history lesson plans, Vicki Shield, who has a um, a curriculum called Math, Measurable, Achievable uh, Through Humanities, as well as this AP, um, Advanced Placement African Diaspora course that, that is being piloted around the country by the African Diaspora um commission so there's uh, several different resources out there that people are are really working hard to improve the curriculum for black children or um uh for all children
0: okay for those of you who are just joining us we're talking about the way history american history specifically is being taught in the classrooms and ways to possibly evolve it to make it more meaningful for the students who are learning it into that rob i have a question for you regarding uh, teaching to the test, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) I know everyone who was taught in high school has this problem. And you're trying to balance the teaching to also being able to allow your students to pass the tests.
1: Well, so US history is not tested in Missouri. It's a required course, but there is not um, because the test was expensive. So um, it's sort of a double-edged sword. You want it to be tested, so it's important. I think there are, it depends on the district where you're in. Some schools have um, common assessments and they shape those and then that leads to how teaching is um, occurs. Other places, teachers have quite a lot more freedom. Um, and I think that the, the, the issue of teaching to the test, the one place where it really comes to, to play is in the advanced placement program because that is a national test. And they have made great strides to create Questions that require diverse knowledge of multiple multiple peoples and multiple um, geographies. I think you know, going back to what Lagaret said, the key to avoiding that sort of teaching to the test. I've got to do what somebody else is expecting is quality professional development, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that teachers are empowered, that they mm-hmm. they don't feel um, linked to their textbook, that mm-hmm. they can bring the multiple stories. Um, to their children so that these young people can learn a wide variety of stories.
0: And our next caller, I think, would like to expand on that point. Brian is calling from St. Louis. Good afternoon, Brian.
5: Good afternoon. Great
0: program. Um,
5: so I was a history professor for many years, and I noticed a lot of my students um, were in the athletic program, and they wanted to be coaches. And they thought the easiest track to a full-time job in the public schools where they could do what they really wanted to do was to get a social studies degree. And I thought a lot of times uh, the school districts were hiring coaches first and where can we put them in the academic ranks where they'll do the least amount of damage? Oh, yeah, social studies. So you're not necessarily getting really professional historians. You're getting someone who can coach a good football team or baseball team and has kind of a uh, some some knowledge of American history, and it tends to be kind of shallow and often distorted too. I can give you like one example that I got a lot of students thinking about like, oh, America got out of the Great Depression because of war. War is profitable, when in fact, really, the New Deal played a huge role in getting us out of that. And that's kind of a revisionist way of. making the new deal less important
0: than it really was okay Rob did you want to respond to that (laughs) well first I "I
1: want to say some of my best friends are coaches Um, and (laughs) and and there are great coaches who are teachers yes 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 but but this is yes (laughs) (laughs) but it it, this is problematic and particularly smaller districts um that that happens Um,
2: So I think that this issue, and I have seen this over my 20 years in history, in the history department and in teacher preparation, uh, it comes back to this question of how we think about preparing teachers and to an extent the role the textbook plays. So the textbook is a single tool in any teacher's toolkit, and the more that we develop their knowledge, as, as you point out, Lagaret, and through quality professional development, uh, historians and teachers need to be working together to shape the kinds of work that goes on in classrooms.
0: We could easily take the entire hour. I have at least a half dozen other questions. I know other callers we cannot go to, so my apologies, but I do want to thank all of you, Mizzou's LeGarret King, Umsul's Laura Westoff, and Robert Good for joining us today. Thank you. it has been a great discussion. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWM.